And then I laid the the body bag next to him and did the same thing with the sleeping bag, just kept walking with it. And he rolled into it. And I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> hey, that's not bad. That's crafty right there. Yeah. <laughs> how was that? How was that car ride then after that? That's what I want to know. I have to ask my employee. I, I sent her straight to Kalamazoo oh. with that one. <laughs> We have a real life hero here today. We got Ed. Uh, it's true. Don't shake your head at me like that. He he absolutely is. Um, he enlisted in the army. I mean, literally the next day after 9-11 and he was an embalmer, just got licensed right before it happened and went into the army, was in mortuary affairs, an unbelievable, super cool story. And he's been in funeral service for 27 years. He's got a ton of experience, fun, crazy stories. Uh, Ed, we want to know how that came to be at the very beginning, because what a transformational time at such a young age that you were going through. Walk us through the that that whole process when you're first getting started in funeral service. Well, uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, having me on here. Um, yeah, so I was a junior in high school uh, writing an English paper. And uh, it, it was a subject, you know, it was a semester long research project. It could be on any subject that we wanted. And uh, I guess for a lot of reasons, but no reason at the same time, I chose what happens to us after we die. But that, that was okay. going to be my thesis statement. And so it involved interviewing funeral directors and uh, reading the books and trade journals and things like that. And just uh, kind of taking the deep dive into something I knew nothing about. Yeah. Uh, just so happened that uh, a classmate of mine uh, had a dad who was one of the, uh, one of the funeral directors at one of the local funeral homes. Um, okay, nice. She hooked me up with him, and I went in and uh, interviewed him, and he gave me a tour of the place. Um, and I, I just thought, wow, this is a really, really cool job. And <laughs> towards the end of that, you're a unique person for thinking that I'll tell you that much. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. It's just so unique, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, if nothing else, it's definitely that. <laughs> yeah. And they, uh, they, towards the end of that semester, I found out that they were looking for a, uh, another, they call it night staff or night, night person. Um, sure. They basically come in at uh, four or five o'clock, keep the funeral home open during visitation, close it down, be on yep. call at night, every other weekend, stuff like that. The fun job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I figured oh, I could do that. And, and so yeah. I did. Wow. That's, uh, that's a good, that's a good start to it. And then, so um, you went to mortuary school, you were literally in high school. So how did that even work? Where, how, how did that transition in the first place? That that's, that's one of the most young licensed funeral directors I think we've ever had. You might be the youngest, honestly. Well, I, I got licensed at 21. So when I graduated high school, I, I figured, um, you know, my, the next, it was just a, a natural transition to go right into mortuary school, uh, which at the yeah. time, you know, San Francisco had a program. And so I went through there, um, had to move to San Francisco and, um, to me, that that was just it was amazing because one of the um, guys that I um, was one of my early mentors when I first got the job at the local funeral home was licensed in the 1940s. Old, 
Wow. Especially Navy World War II vet, you know. Nice. The, the day I brought my application into the funeral home, I tried handing it to him. Can you please give this to your manager? And he just looked at me. He goes, you want to work here? <laughs> yes. And then he took three steps backwards. This is the most dramatic thing this man's ever done. He took three steps backward <laughs> and put his hands out like this and said, 50 years, this is what happens to you. And he goes, Hi, what, makes, what did he mean by that? Well, I'm 17 years old. I have no idea what to think about that. And I, I was like, can you just give him the application? He goes, I'm not going to take that from you until I give you a tour of this place. I said, well, I've had a tour. That was part of my research project. He goes, yeah, you haven't seen anything. Follow me. And we bypassed all of the offices, all the arrangement, all the uh, parlors, the chapel, yeah. and went straight into the embalming room where someone was just being brought yeah. in from a removal and put on the, the table and there's people in different states of, of prep and he goes i'll take your application now <laughs> yeah that's the way you got to get tossed right in there's no other way to do it absolutely yeah so anyway he was he was one of my my early mentors and and he had been uh well everybody went to san francisco in that area um school had been in yeah. operation since the 30s wow um, so yeah. you, you hear, hear all the lore about the San Francisco College of Mortuary Science and yeah. the experiences they've all had and just felt like sure. the right passage to go uh, enroll and, and be part of that program. It's cool that every little community or every little city, there's always the the local mortuary school and like 80% of the people go to that specific one. Mm -hmm. And it's that connection you share with everyone. You got the stories and you, you ask about the, the, professor that's been there for 45 years or whatever it is and they're still around it's guy. the same same deal here and I, I love hearing about that stuff yeah with the the, the professor that you're referring to and, and for our school was uh, his name was mac um he had, okay he was a student and teacher at the same time back in the 1950s and it's like being uh on an nba roster and uh, being phil jackson at the same time <laughs> but what was cool about it was everybody who had ever been to that school that was still alive had mac stories because not only had he been there forever he was a character too so every, everybody loved him he, he had all, all yeah. these great stories about how he lost his finger and every day the story about how he lost his finger was different and was always different meant to teach you some sort of lesson and <laughs> How can he be such a skilled embalmer with a, a missing finger? It's going to prohibit you in some way. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know that I ever saw him embalm because when we, when we were in the lab, uh, if we had a problem, he said, I don't know, you're the embalmer. <laughs> <laughs> Classic defer. I've never actually done this. I just know how to talk about well, it. <laughs> he, he had done it, but uh, no one's ever witnessed it. <laughs> Oh, that's great. What a funny story. I remember uh, some some kids in my class or guys in my class joking around about one of our professors or something that was maybe a little bit less experienced or something. They're like, um, oh, I'm going to I'm going to raise the the vein and inject the vein and like call it the artery or something. I was like, what are you like talking about? Like, that's first of all, not an easy thing to do, especially if you're a student. Second of all, like, the, the professor's going to know, like they, they, they have some awareness and it ended up like they nicked the vein. There was blood everywhere. And it was like, just like, like an absolute fool, like trying to like play a prank on the teacher. Just, uh, you gotta love the, the mortuary school story. Didn't work out well for him, huh? 
<laughs> sure didn't. Okay, what happened after that then? So um, is that did you start actually working or was it pretty quick turnaround when 9-11 happened and um, the rest of the career got kicked off? Oh, yeah, I, I graduated from mortuary school in 99, um, did my apprenticeship okay. in California. It's two years. Um, I did that apprenticeship uh, at a very high volume uh, funeral home. So embalming only. Um, yep. got my license in April give 2001. You right oh yeah. T ton of experience. Um, yeah, April, 2001 licensed. And then, um, I was actually on my way to go to special effects mortuary or special effects makeup school in Pennsylvania. Um, Whoa. uh, it was, I was supposed to start, you know, the fall semester and I'd already yeah. given up my apartment already, you know, tied up all those loose ends to go to school and, uh, 9-11 happened and military wasn't even really on my radar at that point, but, um, yeah, I don't know, just something changed in me and my perspective changed. And calling. I, yeah. I, my first reaction wasn't to join the army. My first reaction was to go to New York as an embalmer and, and, and yeah, health support. You know, right. I, I don't know what they need, you know, but that went nowhere. My next thought was national guard that went nowhere find a number for the national guard <laughs> ended up calling the actual army and um sat down with a recruiter and yeah and you know in the army you get to pick your job there's over 200 ways you know to to serve with you know sure. in the west um it was such a, a fly-by-night decision that I, I saw mortuary affairs and i was like well i i guess that fits yeah um, so enlisted uh, as a mortuary affairs specialist. Unbelievable. Well, well, first off, thank you for your service. We, we do appreciate it. And um, what a cool thing to say, you know, at the time when our country is in such a, a crisis to step up to the plate, like that's so admirable and, and wonderful thing to, to see. That's, that's pretty amazing. Um, I'd love to know about what your career looked like then as a, in mortuary affairs and what did you do? Did you go, you know, were you over in um, Afghanistan or anything like that? Um, and how did your career go um, in mortuary affairs for the army? Sure. Um, surprisingly, when I got to what they call permanent party where, you, you know, you're done with all your training, you get assigned to your unit. I was out of yeah. Fort Lee, Virginia with the only active duty mortuary affairs company in the army, 54th quartermaster. Company. Oh. Um, and there is no peacetime mission for the 54th quartermaster. So there's nothing okay. to do when you're at Fort Lee, except get in trouble and do chores, basically. I mean, <laughs> okay. you know, cigarette butts and raking dirt, you know, is pretty much what you do yeah. that day. Um, <laughs> and there was a, a platoon getting ready to deploy to the Middle East right when I got there. And I was like, can I, can I please go with them? Yeah. Like, I, I just, yeah. I want to go. That's the whole point. I said, no, right. for whatever reason, I was, uh, denied that. Um, and I, I was just such a pain in the ass the rest of the time that, um, when it came time to send another platoon to Afghanistan, they put me in it. Um, so I got to go to Afghanistan for go. seven months uh, <clears throat> wow. while I was in Afghanistan, the rest of the army invaded Iraq. Uh, so I yeah. came home from Afghanistan. Uh, six months later I was in Iraq. I was there for a year. Um, wow. And then I decided to uh, re-enlist, but I didn't want to continue with mortuary affairs. 
Oh. But by that time, I, you know, I, I wanted something different or more, whatever it was. And so I, uh, yeah, re, they call it reclassing to be retrained and reassigned. So I uh, chose infantry with the 82nd Airborne Division. Okay. So got to learn wow. how to jump out of planes and got, got us. What I mean, what a combo you had. <laughs> that, I, was, has that ever been done is what I want to know. Has anyone ever done what you've done? It's gone the other way. There have been guys in the 82nd, you know, infantry that enlisted without knowing any better and then decided to hell with this and, and went to mortuary affairs. Um, but I, I don't know that anyone's Wise. ever gone in the back door like that. Look the other way. Right. Uh, okay. So what was it like uh, being over there um, just in general speaking and then actually for your your position? Uh, what, what was that like as much as you want to talk about it we don't have to go too deep if you don't want but um whatever you feel like sharing yeah i don't mind at all um afghanistan was was a trip um because mm-hmm. it's you know kind of the foothills of the himalayas so it's you're really high elevation it's hard to breathe when you first get there um, yeah it was cold um snowy uh you know during the winter months um right we were uh we were separate from everybody else um the mortuary team, there was, a, there was a team of six of us. Uh, okay. And our, our position was basically on the flight line at the very end of the runway. Um, Cause we were Bobby Air Base oh. and because mortuary affairs, we, our main task is to receive and evacuate. Um, right. Right. Past. Um, so we're, we're right on the flight line and we weren't in, what they call tent city where everybody else was living. So we, we were on our yeah. own little secluded uh, camp and yeah. And for the most part, we, we all got along and we, we loved being out there. We could do whatever we wanted. Um, Afghanistan right. was a, uh, a thankfully uh, slow uh, from the point of intake. Um, I think we took That's care good. of uh, 20 U S soldiers and then um, about 20 or 25 um, other usually local nationals, Afghanis. Sure. Um, that I sure. Care or custody. Um, yeah. So it was a pretty, pretty boring seven months really. Um, but yeah. interesting from the, you know, from the standpoint of you're in a combat zone and yeah. that's just a brand new thing to you. Right. Um, and it's so different because the, these losses are, uh, you know, something, someone's giving their life, for their country. So it's such a, a special sort of thing. And you have to have that extra level of revenants. And it's, it's one of your, one of your people, one of your brothers or sisters that, that has died. It's gotta be such a hard thing to see that come through. How did you handle that? I don't know that we did handle it. We just did. Yeah. Um, we, we just, you just did, we it. Just did yeah. it. Um, yeah. The, you know, you, you figure out how to deal with that afterwards. Um, right. That, uh, yeah. And I'm not ashamed to say it. that I, you know, came out of there with uh, undiagnosed and certainly unrecognized PTSD. I didn't know what was sure. Happening. Had I known then what I know yeah. today, I, I would have known. Dude, you, you, you still need help. <laughs> you, you need to yeah. process that. Uh, I'm all Jeez. better now. Um, good, good. But uh, no, it was, um, it, it's, it's, it's surreal. You know, when, when you see somebody yeah. the same age as you, the same uniform doing, you know, not necessarily the same thing in combat, but you're all there for the same reason. 
same purpose and, yeah and this is this is what can happen this is the reality of it you know some of it was accidents scary some of it was combat some of it was suicide um man you know so you're, you're seeing nothing but trauma you know there's, there's no yeah. natural death in combat no so um no that's tough. I, I don't that smile to make light of it. I, I, I smile because it's uh, it, it's it's something that I'm so proud that I was able to do. Um, you know, no I, was, I was able to, uh, or as a team, we were able to uh, take care of these guys um, in country and, and yeah. get them on the first leg of the journey home. Right, because you're you're trying to probably go as fast as humanly possible to get them through the process and get them on the next flight, like get them out. Um, how is that? I guess, I guess I would I'd like to ask, what is the embalming process like compared to what you would see at a normal funeral home? So what's, what's the biggest difference you're seeing? There's no embalming overseas. Okay. Do not embalm in a combat zone anymore. Um, that was, uh, okay. I think that went away to Vietnam. Yeah. Um, our, our job was to receive uh, the individuals, um, verify their identification, make sure that they had you know dog tags or ID card, um, get a member of their unit sure. to sign an affidavit saying they know that to be them. So identification was extremely important. Um, That's hard. Safeguard their yeah. personal effects, return weapons yeah. and sensitive materials and ordnance back to the unit. Um, and then work with the Air Force to find out um, the next uh, next plane that they can get on. Yeah, geez, that's tough. That's a that's not an easy job, and you have to be meticulous about that. I'm sure. Right. Well, and part of what we did too was we had to catalog um, or anatomically chart all of their uh, uh, scars, tattoos, and and wounds. You know, wounds, and yeah. when when. You know, you, you get the ones where mo most of the, the diagram of the body is just blacked out, you know, because yeah. so much was not recovered. Gosh. Yeah. Those, they were tough cases. They were, they were tough to uh, to deal with. But we, you know, we, we looked at it from the standpoint of this is this is an honor and a privilege to be in this position, you know. And, yeah. Um, other units, yeah. even the ones we answered to, gave us that distance. You know, they they let us not fall in line with the rest of their, uh, you know, the units in their charge. So right. We were able it makes to sense. Kind of decompress on our own time and, and and just be amongst our own team. Yeah, because you're doing some of the worst of the worst, having to go through that, and you know, witness the things with your own two eyes, and it just um, you know, having to, to know what you're there for and the whole thing in general, is just, that's, that's such a challenge and not an easy thing for the strongest of people to go through. So it's, I can only imagine that that would weigh on you for a bit, but it seemed like you were there and you had the right mindset that you were there to do the job, to serve as best as you can for not only for them, but their families and everything else. Uh, it's, it's quite, quite a crazy thing that you've had to go through. Well, and you know, and it's an all volunteer army. So it's literally what you asked to do. You, you literally yeah. volunteered to be there, you know, and, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm, I'm glad I was able to, to be there and, 
I'm glad that I had a, even though it wasn't required, I'm glad that I had a mortuary science background. Um, it, it helped in a yeah. lot of ways. Uh, I'm sure. Because we're in, in mortuary affairs training for the Army, you're not taught a lot of things in general. You know, you're, you're given kind of a broad scope and then it's on the job training from there. Right, so, right. So having a little bit it's just like being a mortician. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. How was it in Iraq then? What what was the the biggest difference between the the two then? I there was a lot more going on in Iraq. Um, okay. Uh, we were at Biop, which is the Baghdad International Airport. Um, that's where we mm -hmm. evacuated from. Um, we again we had a tent at the end of the flight line. Um, and we were just out there by ourselves. Um, but there was just a lot more going on. Um, we probably processed yeah. um, between U.S. servicemen, uh, third country nationals, local nationals, other coalition forces, probably around five or 600 uh, decedents in the one year. And that was in a year. Yeah, that's, that's a ton. Golly. And it was the same, same sort of process then, same um way about going out what was there anything different besides the level of volume um one of the challenges we had in iraq as far as um evacuating and receiving uh u.s servicemen and women um, that was pretty much the same you work with the air force and you get them out as soon as possible the, the main right. challenge we had was i was there when iraq was given their sovereignty back in 2004 as a nation okay. and so their medical examiner was starting to stand up as an entity a government entity uh, in Baghdad yeah. and so we had to work with the medical examiner and the ICRC which is Red Crescent um, to try and repatriate the local nationals that we had in our custody who were in a 40-foot deep freeze um, you know we, we would what? receive them we'd take pictures of their faces and we, we had this big binder and we, we'd go into the green zone, you know, the coalition forces green zone and um, link up with different uh, the, the Red Crescent or um, the medical examiner. And uh, we'd sit down with families and they'd flip through the, the binder and identify somebody. And then we had to plan um, a link up in order to give the medical examiner a whole bunch of bodies or just link up with the family to deliver one right logistically that was that took all of our time <laughs> yeah a ton of logistics there yeah. i mean and you have a, a ton coming in you have multiple a day pretty much yeah and, and a lot more uh, uh coalition forces we were dealing with a lot of embassies from other nations um all who handled uh a different challenge itself I'm sure. a lot differently and you know yeah but, um, but everything, you know, we, we just, we rolled with the punches. We learned to be flexible. Um, we had to stand our ground, you know, and do things the way that we had to do them. Yeah. But, uh, so that, that was the main difference. Iraq was just a lot more complicated from those aspects. Yeah. Well, it made you who you are and you were able to, to move on from there, I'm sure to, to hold different, uh, side of, uh, funeral service. Uh, what what happened after that? So when you were done serving, did you go back to San Francisco and work out there? Um, what was the beginning of your next form or next part of your career like? 
Well, yeah. Be, so I was in the airborne infantry for the next four years. Um, and then, uh, right. Did, did two more deployments there and responded to Katrina with them. So, okay. Nice. You know, then spent a, a year with the California national guard, which we can, we can forget about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I went back to San Francisco and, and took my old job basically. Um, so where I'd served my apprenticeship, went right back to a high volume funeral. Was that old timer still there waiting and shaking? Oh, he, he, he was back in my hometown. That, that guy. He, he, he was oh, okay. Alive. He, okay. He, he, he was, uh, yeah, he, he died a couple of years after I came home. Ah. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of, a lot of the faces at the, funeral home in San Francisco that I worked for had changed. I had changed. Um, yeah. it, it was hard transitioning back and, and becoming part of that, that team again. Right. I, uh, demanded uh, higher standards than people were used to, you know, and, and held myself to them too, you know, so I, that's good. I'd become a better yeah. embalmer. Um, but at that point I had never really, uh, worked with families and I, I wanted to do that. Um, yeah. And I, a whole different side. Yeah. Funny story when I, well, I don't know if it's funny, but right when I, um, got back within about six months, uh, working in the prep room, uh, receptions came over the intercom and said, Hey, Ed, the army's on the phone. What the hell does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean the army is on the phone? Like, like who, what yeah. is it for service? <laughs> And so it was, um, it was somebody looking for a funeral home for a soldier that was killed in Iraq. Oh, um, and so I, I took the, uh, the first call info basically, and kind of had to sell the funeral home a little bit. I said, Hey, hey look, you know, you're probably going to call around, get the best prices, whatever you got to do. But, um, from an infrastructure standpoint, we're the largest funeral home here. We have the people, we have the vehicles, we have the facility, like we, we can handle this. Yeah. And, um, we ended up getting that call and we were busy wow. at the time. And so the manager said, you're going to be the lead funeral director for that. My first family ever. And wow. That's, that's full circle right there. <laughs> that's really cool. Wow. Thrown, thrown into the deep end. So yeah. I, I don't know. If it was ever, probably massive and nuts. I, I don't know if you ever had to deal with that at, at KIA from Iraq or Afghanistan. No, but it is just, I have not. It, it is uh, a lot of planning and a, a lot of uh, communication and a lot give of give us a little bit of a rundown. What's that? Yeah, give us a little bit of a rundown of it. How does the whole process work? And then what happens when he came back and, and everything? I, I'm very curious. It's that's a that's a whole different type of loss and obviously uninvolved too. So what what happens? Um, so they, they are embalmed in Dover, Delaware. When they get stateside, they're embalmed by uh, DOD contractors at the uh, Port Mortuary in Dover Air Base. Got it. Okay. Um, but before you even receive anybody, you have to coordinate with the casualty affairs uh, officers that are assigned to the family. And in this mm -hmm. case, there was a divorce in the, the, the family. Um, so the, there yeah. was two parents that were split. And then there was the wife. Yeah. Um, and so I'm dealing yes. with three different casualty affairs officers, all with their own interests representing who they represent. Oh. Um, 
and then we're trying to figure Talk out about a nightmare first family. Yeah. yeah. And then we're trying to figure out, you know, where is he the decedent in this process? Mm-hmm. Um, when is he coming in and what they wanted us to do? And I don't know if this is still a thing, but they wanted us to schedule the service before they would schedule his arrival. That's not going to fly. I, well, I, I was in charge, but I wasn't in charge. <laughs> you know, there's right. certain things I have control over. You were secondary. Like, let, let me get the body and then we'll go from there. It doesn't work that way. So we, right. we had to schedule a service um, and then they uh, coordinated when he was going to arrive. And of course, every, every part of the movement of the body um, has to be done to military protocol. There has to be military call bearers. Okay. Um, and anytime you, you travel up and down the, the road with him, um, you have to notify California Highway Patrol, or, you know, state police, wherever you're at, um, really? the local county sheriff, the, the, the police jurisdictions that you're going to be driving through. You have to make sure that uh, dignitaries in your city are notified because they're going to want to be involved. Um, you have to find out wow. what top brass from the military is going to be there because we had some general um, that was going to present the flag come down from some fort that's cool washington um so it's just a massive amount of coordination then you got all the other groups like the uh, uh gold star mothers um they they wanted to come and make a presentation at graveside and i didn't know that until the morning of they figured they would just show up and do it curveball <laughs> Well, it was a lot of curveballs. Um, I can only imagine, yeah. But uh, we made it happen. And, uh, gave him a good send off, and that's great. That, that family was ice cold towards me at the beginning, and it was it was hugs sure. and exchange of personal cell phone numbers at the end. So there's nothing better than that. That's one of the best feelings in the world when you have tough family start. They want nothing to do with you. They're they're they want to take their ring out on someone. It's the funeral director who gets the blunt of it, but then you get them to switch that flop. Woo, yeah, that's sweet right there. It, it, it's a nice feeling, and and when everything just goes smoothly and everybody did exactly what they were supposed to do, yeah, it was it was good. And for your first family that you really ever helped on that level. Um, talk about getting the the experience right off, starting with the bang. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why he thought that was a good idea, my manager at the time, but um, <laughs> I guess he thought I could handle it. And you know, I I, I think I um, uh, let go a lot of my prep duties during that time because I, I was certainly busy. I'm sure. I, you know. Yeah. For, for someone who doesn't have a desk. <laughs> To have to do that level of uh, service planning was just um, it, it was it was eye opening. You got the embalming table as a desk if you need. It would have been fine. There's always somebody on it. <laughs> we were too busy for all that. That's what I always say. That uh, the prep room's my office, so uh, yeah. don't come out in without knocking. That's right. <laughs> cool. And then, uh, all right. So now uh, you have a full career in between then. Now you're in Northern Michigan and you run your own trade service. Uh, what, what was the path to get there? Um, we, we left my, we, my wife and I left San Francisco. She's from Michigan. So we decided that uh, we would go to Michigan. Um, in order to ensure a job, I, uh, 
took a, I, I was looking at job openings for, for SCI and ended up working at mm-hmm. one of their locations uh, here in Traverse City. Um, nice. They sold out to uh, another, um, not another corporation, but a family here that owns probably, you know, 12 or so locations and they wanted in this market. And so uh, I worked there for about two years before they, uh, they sold to them. SCI sold to this other place okay. and then uh, yeah, didn't work out. So mm-hmm. I knew at the time that um, uh, the medical examiner here was, was looking for transportation options because theirs fell through like completely. Yeah. Saw a need. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, and I knew that, you know, there, there was no trade service here at all. No transport company, <laughs> no trade embalmer. When, when we were, when, when That's I was wild. As a funeral director for SCI here, I, there was no one to call. It, it was all in house. It all had to be done in house. Um, That's weird, especially when you come from a big city like San Francisco, and I'm sure there's tons of trade, okay. and you're just used to. If I have to outsource, I outsource, and then you go to a smaller area, and they don't have it. It's like, how do you even function? Yeah. Like, what do you mean? There's no trade company. There's no no, no transportation company. No trade embalmers. Yeah, it was, it was weird. Um, but I also saw that as an opportunity and I had, you know, I'd gotten a business degree while I was still in San Francisco. So I would kind of had that, uh, mindset that I wanted to do something on my own at some point. Yeah. That itch. Yeah. And so that, that was the point. Um, we went ahead and started the company and got the medical examiner transportation contract. And nice. I didn't know any funeral directors in the area aside from the ones I worked with. And so. It was just, that's tough. It's all about the, the connection too in trade service. All man, that's, that's tough. All cold calling and, and, you know, walking in and introducing myself and, uh, but it, it, how'd you, how'd you do it then? What was it like? You're like, I promise you I'm a good embalmer. Yeah. Like what, what'd you do to get, what'd you do to get business? Um, I didn't do anything special other than just make myself available and, and make sure that they knew that um, not, not only am I a trade embalmer, I'm, I'm a company, you know, I'm, I'm licensed. I got my own liability insurance. Um, yep. You know, I, I have recommendations from people that I did work with. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the, the trade embalming, I, I thought it was going to be a transportation company with a little bit of trade embalming sprinkled in, but it's really turned out to be a lot more embalming than I bargained for. Really? Why do you think that is? Uh, I think that there's a lot of owners that either don't want to do it anymore, don't have time. Um, They're short staffed. They don't have a lot of licensed people. Uh, The licensed people that they do have are inexperienced. Um, Okay. You know, so there's some places that uh, only call me for, you know, the tough ones. Oh man, but, but mostly that's got to be the worst part about trade embalming is that a lot of times, like funeral directors, like I'm not touching that one. <laughs> there, there's no bigger honor than a funeral home feeling overwhelmed with the body in front of them and knowing that they can call you. That is, and so I, yeah, that's an honor. I, I, I take that for that's how I look at it anyway. I don't know, maybe maybe they maybe they are <laughs> dumping on me. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm a little bit scared of that one. I might as well call Ed. Yeah, like, I cannot be available if I want to be. 
<laughs> right. Exactly. What, what are some, what are, have you had any crazy cases? Like what, what are some of the most maybe unique ones that you've come across over your years? Um, if, you know, I don't really feel that any case is unique anymore. I, I feel like these days you're getting the gamut of everything. A straight case okay. is unique. Um, or a one point yeah. injection is, is unique. Um, that's a good point. Everybody yeah. has jaundice. Everybody has edema. People have yeah. tissue gas. You know, I, I had a, yeah. a, a body that was going to be a straight case the other, a uh, couple weeks ago or months ago, I lose track of time. Um, he was a head trauma. And so they did okay. a cranial autopsy and I, I thought, you know, okay, so we're going to do, um, just a regular embalming and then the cranial treatment. Yeah. Well, his skull was shattered into many pieces. Oh no. And so it became a, a reconstruction on top of it. Um, you get the glue gun out. Well, I, I had a employee <laughs> of mine, um, that wanted to, you know, shadow. And so I just told him, Hey, I'm going to get started on the injection, run back to the house get get the block of wood that's sitting there on the shelf next to the Dremel, grab the Dremel, grab some plaster bandages. Okay. Um, sure. And as I'm drilling holes and, and gluing and tie wiring pieces of skull together, it, it dawned on me that I really have kind of come full circle in embalming. Cause to me, sure. that was just, it, it's just what we had to do today. You know, there was, there was really no thought about how to handle it. You just go right into doing it. What I got to do. Yeah. It's it's right in front of you. You got the experience. It's like, all right, it's go time. Yep. <laughs> There's no need to, to hesitate on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And then what about, um, so how how is business going now? Do you got some some staff alongside you to, to help out? And uh, what is that looking like? And what, I guess, what, because Traverse City is a, a medium size, like it's a pretty good sized town. How far out do you go, and what, what does that look like for your business too? Um, so we handle the medical examiner contract for two counties because it's a, a joint medical okay. examiner, um, and so we're, we're, we constantly have to have somebody, you know, a person and equipment ready to go at any time. Uh, have to be on yeah. scene within being called within one hour. Mm-hmm. That's become quite a challenge um, to make sure that somebody's always available. Yeah, um, that's always the hardest part. Yeah, we do the autopsies three hours away. Um, so, you know, when you have somebody on call but they have to go to Kalamazoo, um, now you have to backfill the local person. Um, and the, the man, the other are you able to? That's that's so far. Are you able to? double up like know that you have a couple cases coming or well what happens in that situation because that's a that's almost a full day of work right there just going to to and from i've never really been given um a standard of how quickly we have to get down there with them um so i set my own standard um yeah if a call comes in after a certain time of night i'm not going to put a driver on the road at three o'clock the next morning there's just not enough time for that person to prepare and get enough sleep and safely make the drive. I'm sure they could, right. but it's the safe, but just for my safety own at that point, yeah, right. I, I want to be that yeah. boss <laughs> that considers safety first. Yeah. So we'll push it off. Maybe they'll like you a little along the way. We'll push it off 24 hours, but that that's as far as I want to 
push it out, you know? Sure. Sure. Wow. That's, that's pretty intense. That's, I mean, you've had to seen a, a lot of, a lot of different things. Do you have any good uh, stories about removals or transfers or any families or something? I mean, you've been doing this for what was 27, did you say 27 years? Is that right? Years. G- give us, give us some of your best unloaded on us. <laughs> well, I, you know, the, the best removals um, are, are decomps in, in bad spots, you know, best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's when you're doing your job now. <laughs> yeah. You're earning, you're earning, you, you know, those house calls, people, um, people say, well, I could do that job. But when, when you go out to the homeless encampment where somebody's been sitting there for a couple of weeks out in the middle of the woods, um, which is a real story that happened last summer, I call last summer Tell the summer that. of the decomp. It just really was it rough. Yeah, call was so bad, so bad. Um, Tell us about the woods one. What happened? Uh, they think it was a homicide. Um, really? But, uh, he had been there for probably two weeks in the middle of summer. Um, oh my god! And I I don't know Ooh. if he wasn't found. I don't know how you can miss that smell. I, I think what happened is um, because of other activities that go on in that area, nobody reported it because they don't want law oh, enforcement out okay. there. Yeah. And they're already accustomed to that smell. So they weren't going to say. So I, I, I get out there and um, I, I knew we were in trouble because I was told, okay, well, we're waiting on the fire department to show up with their hazmat suits. And when I got there, oh, the, the tent was over here and the whole group of investigators and everybody else was over there. And uh, the uh, medical examiner investigator told me he still needs pictures of the front of the guy because he was laying on his stomach and nobody wants to roll him. They're waiting on the fire department, all, all that. Um, and so I, I just walk in there and, you know, yeah, it's bad. But how bad is it really? You know, I mean, it's it just yeah. is what it is at a certain point. Right. It's like, how much worse is one than the other? You know, like it's all bad. Yeah. And I noticed that he was laying on a a sleeping bag or something. So I went and grabbed one corner of the sleeping bag and just started walking with it. And that flipped him over onto his stomach or onto his back. And I told the investigator, he's on his back. You can go take your pictures. Wow. Really? So he went and took his pictures. And then I laid the, the body bag next to him and did the same thing with the sleeping bag, just kept walking with it and he rolled into it. And I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> hey, that's not bad. That's crafty right there. Yeah. <laughs> how was that? How was that car ride then after that? That's what I want to know. I have to ask my employee. I, I sent her straight to Kalamazoo oh. with that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's a rough, uh, rough th- three hour trip right I there. Guess what you're doing tonight. <laughs> People probably were driving down the highway. They're getting wafts through the windows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's too good. Wow, that's great. Uh, well, Ed, this has been uh, so fun. We appreciate you taking the time. And uh, thank you again for your service to our country and everything that you're doing to help out your local community. <laughs> it seems like you got your hands full out there. Love it. Love every minute of it. That's great. Well, Ed, we appreciate you again. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much.